So Titus 1, beginning in verse 1, let us hear God's word. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. <clears throat> Excuse me, last time uh, <clears throat> we do what I uh, normally do when we begin a book, and that is... Uh, Take a look at some of the the broader view here, the bigger picture um, of uh, the book. And uh, we focused on some of the historical context here, as well as the New Testament's references to Titus. And so we learned a little bit more uh, about him in that way. And so Paul wrote this letter, most likely 64, 65 AD. He had come to Crete, and he leaves Titus behind to continue his work, <coughs> excuse me, as an apostolic delegate. Uh, as we saw, Titus probably was with Paul on all of his missionary journeys, at least for part of it, if not all of them. And <coughs> um, so people knew him. He was very familiar with the different people, including, obviously, the people here in Crete. He was older than Timothy, uh, and yet um, just as reliable, you might say. Now, as for Crete, Crete was, uh, you might say, an example of modern-day America, a mixture of multiple false teachings, and we as believers and as churches must understand those false teachings so that we can work against them and not allow them to infiltrate the church so that we can uphold the truths of the scriptures. All right, so... um, With this in mind now, let us turn our attention to this first section, and that first section is verses 1 to 4. And so if you do happen to have the outline from last time, okay, I gave you a few different ones here, and notice that all four of these are the same. That's verses 1 to 4, and so we have this opening greeting, this opening salutation from Paul. Now, Paul follows the typical um, letter of the first century. Uh, Typically, the author is mentioned first, followed by the recipient, and then a greeting. Well, Paul does that. He introduces himself, and then he mentions Titus in uh, verse 4, and then he has a greeting. But but in uh, all of his letters, Paul Christianizes the normal, everyday opening letter of the first century. And so uh, Paul uh, does that in a number of ways, and one of the th- things that he does is he gives us a hint, a clue, as to what he is going to talk about in the rest of the letter. And um, that's what we see especially here in verses 1 to 3. All right, now, <clears throat> as we transition to try to look at these words of Paul, we are moving from a, one genre to another. In 1 Samuel, we had the genre of narrative. Now we have the genre of epistle. In 1 Samuel, the words were typically straightforward for us. didn't take a lot of time for us to decipher what words mean. 
most of the time we could cover 10 or 15 verses at a time and that was fine. But as we come now here to an epistle, especially Paul's epistles, we cannot do that. We can't look at a, at a chapter uh, here and faithfully look at the text. We could maybe give a very general survey, but we can't actually uh, exposit the text 10 or 15 verses at a time. As for 1 Samuel, our key task was to look at the main point of the story. What is the story telling us? David going <coughs> to... Um, to, to Akish there in Gath. You know, what, what is this telling us? Those are the things that we are looking at. Well, as we look now here at uh, this letter to Titus, the key task is deciphering Paul's carefully chosen words and how his instructions to Titus um, were to be understood by him and then believers in Crete, and then by extension, how we can apply them to ourselves. So our task here is different. <clears throat> You can't read all the Bible in exactly the same way, and we see that very clearly in this way. As for the Psalms, of course, um, when I started them, I started giving you some outlines because I've noticed over the years, if I just say it, you know, it just kind of goes over your head. But for you to see it, then you can look at it, not just now, but later. And so uh, I did that last time by giving you uh, some of the outlines uh, here for it. Um, also, in regard to the Psalms, in my translation, I'm giving you some sentence structure. It's primarily a line at a time. But as we come here now to Paul, sometimes it's just so hard to follow what in the world he's saying. Because he says this, and then there's three points that are connected to it. How do you follow that? It's, it's challenging. So in light of including outlines and so forth, as I've been doing with the Psalms, I thought it would be helpful for us, and you see here on your outline for tonight, to include a sentence diagram. Um, you don't have to do this with all of Paul's words, but sometimes it really becomes necessary, and these opening three verses, I would say, uh, are such. And so let me briefly run you down through this diagram, the sentence diagram, and then we'll look uh, more specifically at what he's trying to say. So obviously we start with Paul. And then he says two things about himself. He's a slave and he's an apostle. Then there are two prepositional phrase, phrases that expand on apostle especially. And that is according to or for the purpose of and then in or on the basis of. And I'll explain uh, some of those things here in a bit. Notice that the first one according to for the purpose of has two direct objects or two objects of the preposition. The faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth. Then there's a relative clause that expands on the knowledge of truth. Okay, that's just verse 1. Now in verse 2, this preposition has one object, hope of eternal life, but then there are two things that are explaining eternal life, this hope of eternal life. First, the relative clause, which God promised, and secondly, but he revealed his word. And then which God promised has a relative clause and a prepositional phrase. And then uh, revealing his word is followed by two more prepositional phrases, another relative clause, and another uh, prepositional phrase. I mean, it's just the way Paul writes. Sometimes it's very intricate. And so I gave this to you for you to look at. I will run us through this here as best as I can in a few moments. But again, I encourage you to look at this. Read this on your own so that you can better understand 
uh, what God is saying to us here through Paul. All right, now, <clears throat> this is the longest of the opening salutations of Paul in the pastoral epistles. Certainly other of his letters are longer, but here of the three, this is the longest of them. And of all of the places in Paul, he gives us the fullest description of what an apostle does in these verses. Okay? And so it's very significant in that way. All right, so let's try to make our way through this here briefly. First of all, Paul. Well, there's not a whole lot to say there. We know who Paul is, right? Uh, Damascus Road and all that. We'll sing a hymn uh, based on that here in a moment, in a few moments. But he says two things about himself. <clears throat> First, he says he's a slave, and secondly, he says he's an apostle. Now, let's um, flesh that out here a little bit. What does it mean to be a slave of God? Well, simply it means to be owned by God, right? If we're a slave, we have a master. We are owned by him. God bought us. He bought Israel out of Egypt. He bought us through the blood of Christ. We have been bought. We belong to him. We are owned by him. And so now <clears throat> we serve him. And because this is God who is doing it, we willingly serve him. We are grateful that we are no longer slaves of sin and death and Satan and our old man. We are now in God's service. Think of Romans 6, for example. Okay. So um, we're slaves. We're all slaves, right? It's just, are we slaves of sin or are we slaves of God? <clears throat> Those are our only two options. <clears throat> and so Paul is saying he is a slave of God. Now, this isn't just true of Paul. In the Old Testament, we see this language of slave or bondservant or servant, depending on your translation. We see it stated of Moses. We see it stated of Joshua. Even before that, with Abraham and uh, Jacob. We see it later with David. We see it with the prophets. And, of course, think of the suffering servant or suffering slave, we could say. Um, and so... <clears throat> Many people in the Old Covenant were called a slave. But notice the, that term was, can you say, limited to certain people. Okay. Well, Paul puts himself in that category. He, too, is a slave of God. And, in fact, this is the only time Paul actually says he's a slave of God. Every other time he says he's a slave of Christ. And I'll return to that point here in a moment. But in the New Testament, this idea of being a slave of God now takes on a broader application. Not just the apostles, but the leaders in the church are called slaves. And in fact, all believers are called slaves of God. Okay? And so all of us have been set apart to serve our God. We have been bought by Christ. We are owned by God, and we must do what he says. And since this is God, we are slaves to Whatever he says is, is a good thing. He is our heavenly master. And so let's do what he says and we will be blessed, right? Psalm 112, verse 1. Okay. So to summarize this thought here just a moment uh, in this way, we are either slaves of sin or slaves of God. And if we become slaves of God, then we actually become truly free. And so to be slaves of God means we are free in Christ Slavery to God is true freedom. And so this is how Paul begins. All right, now let me bring in this point. In the first century, slaves had few rights. 
And yes, some masters were quite cruel, but not all of them. And slaves were considered more like, can you say, employees than they were someone just to be whipped and stomped on. Um, The master would provide all their necessities, food, shelter, and clothing, and so on and so forth. You know, in our culture today, with all of this emphasis on racism and so on and so forth, it's hard for us to say anything about slavery in some kind of intelligent, uh, non-emotional way. Um, But as we look at this description in the first century, slavery was not necessarily the right thing, but it's the way it was. And um, and, and slaves were typically treated well, um, and sometimes very well. Think of Joseph. Yes, he was a slave. But he became the steward of the house, second to Potiphar. Even when he was in jail for false things, he became second to the jailer. And then, of course, he became second to Pharaoh. Here is a slave, a Hebrew slave, running all of Egypt. You would never really think of that with American slavery 150, 200 years ago. Uh, But even sometimes there, a slave could become a steward in the house, depending on the ownership and so forth. All right, I could obviously run down a lot of rabbit trails here in this regard, but let me just simply say this. In the first century, slavery was considered a status issue, not a race issue. So if you conquered another nation, you would take their people, and they now had the status of being at the bottom of the of the the social order and they were slaves really had nothing to do with race or at least not nearly as much as we have seen in our own country uh, in the past Um, so sometimes you'll hear people say that americans uh, invented slavery no that's just ridiculous if you know anything about history that's not true now you could say that america and western europe really focused on race in the issue of slavery. And that is somewhat unique historically. But um, anyway, obviously when we talk about slavery, we've got to address some of that to some degree. But our point here is that Paul is saying he is a slave of God. In fact, we're going to see him say he's a steward in God's house. He has great value, and he has true freedom in this slavery. Now, you might wonder, why does Paul call himself a slave? Well, he does it elsewhere, too. So that's just part of what he says. But he is writing to people in Crete, Titus obviously receiving the letter. And so it may be that there were slaves in Crete, and that's why he says it. But in particular, why does he say slave of God and not slave of Christ like he does elsewhere? Well, that may be because of the Zeus tradition in Crete, and that Paul was more concerned about saying he is a slave of the true God, not the slave of God's son. And so that may be why he says it a little differently there. Um, But in the end, Paul is saying, I'm a slave, I must obey God. Titus is a slave too, by extension, he too must obey God. And all believers on Crete and all believers here today, we must obey God here in this way. He owns us. We must serve him. And so whether we're an apostle, an apostolic delegate, an elder, a deacon, or a regular Christian, 
We all must think of ourselves as slaves of our God. And really, there's no better thing. All right, now the second thing that he says about himself is that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, an apostle is someone who is sent with a specific commission. Now, this can apply to a variety of things. But obviously, in the New Testament, the emphasis here is on um, Paul being sent by Jesus to bring the gospel to others. That's the primary commission that he has been sent to do. And so it's the initial bringing of the gospel as well as teaching in regard to gospel living. Okay. So <clears throat> Paul has been sent to Crete. He establishes a church. He is doing the work of an apostle. And now he sends Titus to do the work of an apostle in his place. So hence he is delegating this uh, work to Titus. Now, in regard to apostles, let me just say this briefly. Right? There were 12 apostles. You add Paul, some will add James and such, um, but that's it. There are no more apostles. Now, there are apostolic delegates. We have Timothy. We have Titus. Can we consider Luke in this category or Mark? What about Jude or Apollos or Barnabas or the author of the Hebrews if it's not one of those people? So apostolic delegation does seem to have been uh, somewhat, uh, can you say, part of the early church. <clears throat> but when we think about apostleship, none of us are apostles in this way. None of us have been delegated by an apostle to do this work. That ended when John the Apostle died. Okay. That said, we have been sent with the gospel by Christ. Not in this great official way like an apostle, but as, if you will, a little apostle. I have been sent to you with the truth. Okay? Your ruling elders have been sent as well. Missionaries, obviously, are sent to other places. We as parents are sent to our children to teach them the gospel. And all of us have been sent to bring the gospel to everyone we meet. So even though we are not eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection, which is what an apostle had to be, uh, even though we have not been specially chosen as Christ chose the original uh, apostles, yet in, this, in a lesser way, we are to witness to Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. We must teach the scriptures and represent him in all that we do. We must live by faith. We must call others to faith. We must know the scriptures, and we must instruct others in the scriptures. We must live a godly life, and we must witness to others about being godly. Now, another aspect to all of this, and what Paul is going to get at here in the letter, is we're not just giving the truth, but we're also opposing what is false. Okay. All right, now one uh, additional key point here about apostolic ideas. Paul has been sent, but he's been sent with authority, too. He has authority over the churches in Crete, as well as the other ones where he was. And now, Paul has delegated not just the role of bringing the gospel and so forth, but also the authority of an apostle. He has delegated that to Titus. 
Now, once again, to a lesser degree, we have some of that same authority delegated to us by Christ, to your teaching elders, to your ruling elders, to your missionaries, those in particular. And so, if you oppose me or Joe or Stan, you're opposing the authority that Christ has given to your elders. Now, surely there's a right for an appeal. But we have been given authority to lead here in this place. And if you don't uh, follow that, there is ultimately a disobedience to Christ that is taking place. And so Paul is more or less saying that to the people in Crete. You need to listen to Titus here. I've given him my authority here in this way. All right. So, uh, Paul, uh, I guess you could say, assumes this last thought in this context. Um, The Holy Spirit is enabling Paul to do this. He's not doing it all on his own. The same, of course, is true for Titus and for us even today. All right, now, those are the first two nouns and thoughts that Paul says about himself. And so now he gives us two prepositions. Again, if you look at your sentence diagram. So uh, the first is according to, or you could translate it for the purpose of. And then the second one is in, or you could translate it on the basis of. And so depending on your translation, you may have one or the other of those uh, translations. All right, so let's look at the first of these here tonight. And that is according to or for the purpose of. Um, If you read the commentaries on this, uh, most of them are going to say we need to pick one or the other. Okay, fair enough. I'm inclined to think that both ideas are present here. But I do think one is primary. And I think the one that is primary is the idea of for the purpose of. Paul has been chosen by Christ to be an apostle for the purpose of, and note the two objects, the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of truth. So let me flesh that out a little bit. Maybe we could paraphrase it like this. Paul has been sent as an apostle to bring about faith or to further knowledge. Paul is a slave. Paul is an apostle with the task of nurturing their faith. To bring it about initially, yes, but here the emphasis is to grow it by instilling in them more knowledge, more understanding that will lead to godliness. And so I think that's the primary point. I would agree with commentators that would say that, but I, I also would say that I think there's a secondary point here, and that is Paul is an apostle of Christ according to the faith. Meaning, Paul is consistent with the truth. He is orthodox. And, and the false teachers are not. And so he is consistent with it, and Titus needs to be consistent with it. And so too should we. Okay. So, <clears throat> for the purpose of nurturing the faith of God's elect, Paul has been sent. For the purpose of nurturing the knowledge of truth, God or excuse me, Paul has been sent by God and by Christ. And so uh, let me just expand on this thought a little bit. Okay. God obviously chose some people in Crete to become believers. 
Okay, this language of the elect takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. You think of Abraham especially. And God has chosen some. He has elected some to be saved. God chose Israel, not the nations. But even within Israel, there was a remnant. God chose some to be true believers and have the eternal blessings of the covenant, not just the outward blessings of the covenant. Well, now as we spill into the New Testament, those promises to Israel are now applied to the church and even to some people on Crete and even some people here in Western PA. God has chosen some of us to be saved. And so an apostle is sent to nurture us in that faith. Here for Paul, obviously, as well as for Titus. This is what they are doing in Crete. Well, Paul now, of course, is sent somewhere else. And Titus is left behind. And so he is taking on this main task to keep them true to the content of faith as he nurtures them spiritually. <clears throat> this is my job. This is the job of Stan and Joe. This is the job of your elders. This is the job of missionaries. In many ways, this is the job of, of any believer. We must bring the gospel to others and then nurture them in their faith. We might call it evangelism and discipleship, but whatever term you use, that's, that's the idea. So, as I said at the beginning, Paul is giving us a kind of in a nutshell, what he's going to go on to say. Well, starting in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 3, verse 11, he's going to give us all these different ways that he was seeking to nurture the faith of the believers in Crete. Okay, and so we'll look at a number of, of specific ways that is done. And so this is going to give us direction today of how to do the same thing. Well, Paul not only has been sent, and here Titus, to nurture their faith, but also to nurture their knowledge, the knowledge of truth. The New King James says uh, the acknowledgement of truth, which, okay, you can translate it that way, but I think the knowledge of truth is better here in our understanding. And so, simply, we must grow in our knowledge of Scripture. And uh, this is our task. Now, let me uh, pause and briefly say this. Do you see how faith and knowledge go together for Paul? We are told repeatedly in our culture in our christian culture today that these things are, are separate uh, you can have faith that's fine but you know it's just a leap in the dark it's not logical it's not rational okay isn't that what bill nye the science guy kept saying to ken ham that we saw here a little bit ago but the other way we hear too that if you just have the right knowledge it doesn't really matter if you trust you may not put it in those terms, but that's a contrast we often hear. But do you see how Paul puts them together? Okay. So notice then that we cannot have a basic knowledge of the scriptures. We must grow in our understanding. We must improve, not just in our worship as we've seen in the Psalms, we must improve in our understanding of God's word where truth is found. And this is done primarily through preaching and teaching. And so obviously, I am preaching here, and this is the key task that God has given uh, here in the church, as well as teaching. So we have Sunday school, we can have Bible studies, we can read books, commentaries, more 
everyday Christian literature. We can watch videos or listen to podcasts or just simply have conversations with other believers. So Paul's task and Titus's task, and now our task as your elders, and even our task generally, is we must nurture our understanding of the scriptures. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate on it. We can never do enough. All right, now, because of the false teachers in Crete, uh, Paul and Titus are... Uh, emphasizing truth compared to error. Okay? And so, uh, if to, to nurture in the knowledge of truth, it must be according to godliness. So note now the relative clause given here by Paul to finish the verse. It must be according to godliness. Not all truth is. Some truth is the exact opposite. It is false. It leads to the wrong thing. So, two months ago, we sought to do this very thing at the CRT conference. We are trying to nurture your knowledge, to nurture you in your faith, to help you to see how there's all this false teaching, not just in our culture, but in our churches in regard to the critical theories. Okay? If you haven't yet watched those videos, please do. It'll help you. It'll nurture you in this way. I mentioned just a moment ago, right, Eric led us in Sunday school here recently with the Ken Ham, Bill Nye debate. That's another way we can do this. We can nurture our, our knowledge in kind of, if you will, positive ways like we're doing in the Proverbs right now. Or we can do it in the more, can you say, challenging way where we are setting up truth in comparison to error. Again, not all knowledge accords with godliness. Let me give you a few more examples. If you believe that the Mosaic Covenant is a works covenant and it is no longer in place now that Christ has come, it's going to lead you to antinomianism. And that does not accord with godliness. Now, you could do the other, too. If you go down the path of theonomy, that doesn't accord with godliness in certain ways, either. Another example, if you believe that Paul teaches us to obey the magistrate in Romans 13 and that we can only resist in extreme situations, well, this will lead to an impotent church and to a tyrannical state. Thirdly, if you believe that all you need to do is outwardly obey God's law and that the heart and motives do not matter, then this leads to legalism It leads to nominalism. And I could go through and list off any number of other things. Any doctrine that leads us away from godliness does not nurture us in the truth. Does not nurture our faith. And so Paul is telling the believers in Crete and us today that this is his task. This is a task given to Titus. This is a task given to me and and, and Joe and Stan. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And this is what we're supposed to be doing with our children and even with ourselves. Okay? We must know the scripture well enough to believe the right things and to oppose those who say differently. And so this is our task. Beginning with me and your ruling elders, even our deacons, and all of us. Okay? And so let us then <clears throat> follow in Paul's footsteps. 
let us be slaves. Let us be apostles in this little sense by seeking to turn unbelievers to Christ, that they would believe in faith. But Paul's emphasis here is, let us call fellow believers to live according to faith, to know the truth, to live lives of godliness in, comp- in contrast to error. So here's how Paul begins. And it's rather loaded here, isn't it? And so we're going to stop here tonight, and we're going to pick up with the next prepositional phrase there in verse 2, and see more of what Paul is talking about, Lord willing, next time. So let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for um, giving us this book that we might learn um, not just about Paul and Titus and the people in Crete, but our own responsibilities, responsibilities of uh, the leaders here as well as all of us as leaders in our home and leaders in our own lives, you might say. So, Lord, we pray that you would um, nurture us in our faith, nurture us in our knowledge. May our knowledge and faith be according to what is true. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are our master and we must serve you. Remind us, Lord, that we have been sent, not in such an official way as Paul, but we've been sent nonetheless. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in these ways, that you would grow us in grace, that you would help us to remain true to you as the the culture and even the church culture all around us is moving away from truth. Help us to remain true to it by holding on to your word and the faith. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.